0: Welcome to the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm your host, David Scubin. This is a podcast for all Catholics and people of goodwill who strive to live in the world, but not be of the world. First and foremost, we need to be disciples of Jesus ourselves, and then we go forth and make disciples of all nations, just as our Lord commanded. Through a series of timely topics and great guests, we will take that long and narrow journey to heaven together, encouraging each other in faith and virtue along the way. So let's get started. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, my friends, we have a treat for you today. Our guest is an author, historian, commentator, and podcast host who has written numerous books, including that very first one called Every Man Today Called Rome Back in the 1980s to his most recent book about Blessed Charles of Austria. He's also a featured speaker alongside Mr. Vincent Francini on an outstanding weekly podcast produced by Tumblr House called Off the Menu that you can find on YouTube and Spotify. You can also find his columns at Crisis Magazine. Uh, there's so many credentials to go through with this gentleman, but uh, you get the picture. Most importantly, he is our brother in Christ. Mr. Charles Coulomb is joining us. Welcome to the Catholic Connect podcast, Charles. How are you?
1: No, very well. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, thanks
0: for taking some time. We've got a little time difference between us. You're out in in Austria, and uh, I'm in Canada. And uh, you know, I've I've been listening to a few of your podcasts and and uh, some of your your Collins here and uh, you've mentioned to me offline too that you have some connections to Canada so that's kind of interesting uh, and i'm thinking either you have some canadian in your bloodlines or you're a, a secret star hockey player or maybe even a curler in your youth
1: which one <laughs> well I'm a, I'm a little too fat to play hockey these days so <laughs> i'm afraid that's beyond me and i you could me, you I, be a
0: goalie uh, still charles you could still be a goalie couldn't well, you
1: well that's true and you'd have a hard time getting past me <laughs> plus i just sit there and you you know you you wouldn't work Plus, I've lived in L.A. most of my life, and uh, Pache Gretzky, it's really not a hockey town. Trust me on this. Uh, but, uh, as you might guess from my name, uh, on my dad's side, I'm French-Canadian, and I was blessed with Canadian French uh, speaking from the very beginning. I learned English as a second language in schools, uh, and now I think of it, I use it all the time, but uh, I still... Uh, I still love and revere my mother tongue, and uh, in addition to the French Canadian side, I've got a bit of Scots Canadian. Uh, the um, the name there is McKinnon. They came to Prince Edward Island in 1772, uh, and then did a bunk and went to Montmagny, Quebec, and uh, very wisely uh, married into the uh, into the Pelletier family there, and that's how that's how I came to have a bit of Scots blood. But no, um, so on the one side, uh, as my father used to say, we were Canadian a lot longer than uh, we were, we've been American. Uh, came, my first Coulomb ancestor came to Quebec in 1648. And uh, we came down to the States in the 1880s. So we were Canadian for a long time, or especially Canadien. But on the, by the same token, uh, I'm on the board of the Canadian Royal Heritage Trust in Toronto. And uh, I think I they think are one of the few Americans who's actually read George Grant. <laughs> so I, I get a, I get some sort of kudos. I don't know what, and I, and I do like Robinson Davis as well. So just so you know, but uh, no, so the, the uh, affairs in Canada have, uh, let's say from the time I was small, it was always a matter of uh, discussion in the family. And uh, the Revolution Tranquille was uh, not greeted with great, great uh, joy in my house. Uh, my father used to uh, dolefully tell us the latest outrage uh, down through the 60s. And because of that, I was also able to see that the Revolution Tranquille had an effect on Anglo Canada as well. We stop being French when we stop being Catholic, mm-hmm. and the Anglo-Canadians stop being Anglo when they stop being Anglo. You know, you might say that it's kind of ironic that uh, we lost Stephen Baker and Duplessis at about the same time. I mean, politically, Diefenbaker lasted a lot longer. Physically, uh, you know, it it uh, it was a very very unpleasant time. Uh, one of the things that always in my childhood kind of symbolized the death of the Quebec that we came from. Was the uh, tragic death of the lieutenant governor Paul Comtois, who uh, I don't know if you know the story. Nope. But uh, in 19- Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's worth That's knowing. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I've heard of his name. I just it's... don't know the story behind his name.
1: Well, Paul Comtois was uh, he was appointed lieutenant governor, request of course, the advice of Pessy. Uh, The very fact that Duplessis is constantly execrated now shows you uh, how far everything has fallen. But uh, setting that aside, uh, Comtois had a very uh, distinguished non-political career, as well as a political career. He was lieutenant governor, I think from '58 on something like that. One night in 1966, he was in what was then government house in Quebec, uh, Bois de Coulanges, outside Quebec City in uh, uh Spencer Wood is the Anglo name for Bois de Coulonche. And um, it was a fire. So he got his uh, his guests and his family and his servants out of the house. And then he went back to rescue the blessed sacrament from the, uh, from the chapel. Uh, everything we know after that, of course, is post-mortem. But apparently he managed to get in got the blessed sacrament out but he was pinned by a falling beam so he put the blessed sacrament under him the picks was under his chest um and he managed to save it he was killed Uh, his arms were burned off his back was but the front because he was such a big bulky guy was intact and the blessed sacrament was saved and so in a very real sense, I've always thought that the death of Paul Comtois even more than the, uh, the death of Duplessis uh, symbolized the death of the French Canada that my ancestors came from.
0: That's a fascinating story. I've never heard that before. Thank you very much, Charles. That's, that's great. I mean, you know, we may yeah. as well dive right into it. I, I you know what's happened to the Church of Canada. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I am mean, I'm not quite 40, Charles. But I was born in a Catholic hospital where there were nuns that were running the hospital. It's called Immaculata Hospital in Westlock, Alberta. So it wasn't that long ago that there was a lot of influence from both the clergy and from from the sisters and even from lay people. Uh, So we're talking about the early 80s here. But what, what has happened to, you know, even, you know, some of our listeners might be in the United States. You know, Canada was really founded. And built by the Catholic Church, there's a huge influence the, of Catholicism, and the decline it certainly was. And the decline has been frightening.
1: Um, well, it, it it has been, and uh, in fact, if you look at the history of the Canadian West, uh, the story of the Oblates parallels the story of the Mounties. You know, if 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 you really want to know the early history of the the uh, settlement of Alberta and Manitoba and all that. There are three things you need to know: the Hudson's Bay Company, the Mounties, and the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. You memorize those three histories, and you'll you'll pretty much you'll pretty much have the have the history of everything from Ontario west uh, memorized. You know, uh, but what happened? And this is something, of course, I thought a great deal about. Uh, what happened in Canada was not a reflection of what was going on in the church around the world. In Canada, precisely because the church had played such a big role in the establishment of the country, it was particularly grotesque. Uh, in 1970, uh, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, not the current uh, person, um, the, uh, that Trudeau, my dad always used to pronounce his name Pierre, Elliot, Trudeau. He uh, wanted to emphasize the Elliot, you say. But uh, Trudeau asked the bishops of Canada if they would oppose him if he brought an abortion. They said no. Uh, two years earlier, when Humane Vite came out, the Canadian hierarchy went on record as opposing him. So you know what? They've lost their influence. Uh, I would say they deserve to. Charles, was that the Winnipeg statement that a lot of people have heard of? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, indeed I am. And the answer is, you know what? You're going to be like that. You deserve to lose everything you've got. But we'll take it a step further, a step further back. In the wake of the council, as we know, uh, the the church appeared to uh, implode. I mean, I lived in the immediate post-conciliar period. Well, I lived through the council itself, but uh, I was a tiny kid. Um, And priests uh, weren't just altering the nature of the liturgy. They'd rip the rosary apart in the pulpit, tear out the altar rails, throw out statues. And you see, when you've got an organization that has prided itself constantly on being unchanging, and then you have its ministers embrace every change that comes along, you create a crisis of confidence. That was one of the problems, but it wasn't the basic problem. It too, believe it or not, was only a symptom. Uh, The problems that afflict the church today predate the council. All the council really did was sort of lift the rock so you could see the stuff under. I would say the basic problem for the church and why countries that were very clerical, like Canada, especially French Canada, like Ireland, like the Netherlands, where for various historic reasons, you didn't really have an effective Catholic lay leadership so much, where the clergy actually played the role of nobility in a lot of ways. And again, I'm not not putting down the nobility, it's just that that's not really the role of the clergy. Of all for the nobility, uh, I think one of the worst things that happened in Quebec's history was getting rid of the seigneuries. but that's a whole other story. Uh, The thing is that when the clergy, Lost confidence. In many cases, I'd go so far as to say lost belief. Everything collapsed. But what was the root of this? It was a theological issue, not a liturgical one, not a political one. Ultimately, the 10% or so that they say, you know, the, the, the sociologists tell us that in every organization, there's 10% who may or may not have titles who are nevertheless the influential people upon whom everything works. And they they might have a title, they might be a chairman, or they might just be an advisor. Well, it's a 10%. It's the way human organizations are. And it doesn't matter if it's the Rotary Club or the the church or parliament. They're 10% that really make the thing go and the rest of us are along for the ride, really. When that 10% no longer had any real belief in uh, the salvation of souls, in any meaningful sense, everything collapsed. Because you see, the Catholic Church only exists for one reason, to save souls. To uh, Well, two reasons, if you will, to save souls and to keep off the dark. Uh, If you don't believe in those two things, if you don't believe in heaven and you don't believe in hell, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the devil, then the church doesn't have much to say. It, and if you're a churchman and you're in that position, and I'm sorry to say a lot of them are, implicitly if not explicitly, then you could do things like Winnipeg. You could do things like the famous Land of Lakes conference in the States where the uh, American Catholic colleges gave up their Catholic uh, identity to pursue some idea of academic freedom because they didn't believe in the salvation of souls. It even will affect how you deal with the faithful because let's pretend for a second that you're a priest and somebody comes along and says, look, father, I know you're in a rush and you are, you want to get off to some appointment, but I've really got to go to confession. Now, if you think that his staying a faithful practicing Catholic and his going to confession is essential to his eternal reward, well, you're going to deal with him one way. Maybe you really don't have time, in which case you'll be extremely apologetic, and you'll say, heavens, I'm sorry that are in this position. Let me, let, let me put you, get, get you on right now to Father Mike. He can talk to you. I, I'm so sorry. That's at the, at the worst case. Otherwise, you'll make time for him. But if you don't think it's necessary, we will say, yeah, look, pal, come back on Saturday when it's regularly scheduled. I got to get going. And if he leaves the church, you don't care, especially if he's not a big contributor. And again, that, that's not a conscious thing. Mm-hmm. But these sorts, the, what we believe affects how we behave. That is true. Absolutely.
0: You know, that, that's interesting you bring up, you know, just the example of confession, Charles. So we're, we're I live in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. We're so blessed here. And I, I don't think that we have a lot of very good parishioners too, but I don't think that as a parish as a whole, we realize how blessed we are to have, for example, two priests, uh, our, our priest, Father Chris and Father Dan, right now, that they make themselves readily available for confession before each mass that they're doing each day of the week, and if you call, you can call or text them any time and say, "Hey, I got to go to confession," and they'll they'll drop everything and they'll want to hear confession. They'll do it, but that is the that is hardly the norm, hardly the norm now.
1: It is hardly the norm because. A, a huge chunk of the clergy do not really believe in the necessity of confession, and nothing is worse, particularly for those who give it up themselves. You give me a priest or a bishop who stops going to confession, and I'll give you the devil's own daughter. Um, it it corruptio optima pessime, corruption of the best is the worst. Yes, and or. Uh, or to put it, uh, to put it the way Chaucer did in the Parsons tale, if gold should rust, what can poor iron do? No, that's uh,
0: that's pretty profound for sure. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, that, uh, the conference you mentioned about the, uh, the, uh, American universities and colleges really giving up their Catholic identity and a lot of people are sports fans and, and, uh, watch Notre Dame, the fighting Irish play football. And when you see, (laughs) you see the, uh, you know, there's a lot of opposing teams come in and they come and they say, you know, it's so fascinating. We come here and we see touchdown Jesus over the stadium. And I think, you know, first you're like, okay, that's nice that they acknowledge it. But then you say, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this is the problem right here. Jesus is becoming, we're becoming more like fans of Jesus. We're not becoming followers of Jesus, right? Does that make sense to you, Charles?
1: well it it does because it becomes an external thing. You know, I had a very good friend of mine, now deceased, Bill Zook, who was a convert from uh, well, he had kind of a long a long trail. He started out as a very evangelical sort of Protestant, uh, what they call River Brethren. And he successfully became Anglican, then Anglo Catholic, and then became Catholic. Well, Bill, he knew every kind every school of Protestant theology inside and out. Amazing, uh, all the different sorts of Calvinism and baptistry and Presbyterianism and oh man, he could go on and on and on and often would if you didn't stop him. But he told me something one day and only a convert would have come up with this. It would never have occurred to me on my own because we Catholics, you know, we do tend to take things for granted. Or we cradle Catholics, I mean. Uh, and he says to me, you know, when the Protestants accuse us of worshiping the Virgin Mary, they're right. And I looked at him and I said, what, what are you talking about? Because if there's anything every Catholic knows it's that we don't worship the Virgin Mary. And he said, well, no, you don't understand. He said, you've got to bear in mind how Protestants look at Christ. He's an historic figure. They revere him. They try to emulate him. They pray to him. But that's exactly what we do with the Blessed Virgin. Our sacramental worship of Jesus is completely beyond them. It's totally outside their scope. It's a whole other dimension, a whole other world, physically receiving him, being absolved by him, all the rest of it. It's just totally off the menu, if you'll pardon the expression. Uh, And I, I thought about that. And again, you had to be a convert to come up with that. Because I'd, I've never been a Protestant, so, you know, I've seen it, but I, I've been to Protestant services, but I couldn't pretend to know what it's like being one. But I saw what he meant when he explained it to me, because the the worship of Christ via the sacraments is something beyond the reverence we give the Virgin Mary, beyond the the uh, the love we have for the saints. It's something completely outside the circles of this world, so to speak. And again, when you look at, at the necessity of the sacraments for salvation, at the necessity of the church for giving them out, you're in a whole, a whole different different world. Well, at Lakes, to say nothing of Winnipeg, huge chunks of what passed for Catholic officialdom basically renounced all that. It's not that important. It's one thing among many. It went from being the ultimate objective standard of truth to being an option, a nice thing. It's okay, yeah, sure. Not a problem, yeah. Oh, if you want to do that Catholic stuff too, that's okay. But you see, the problem for the believing Catholic is that that's like saying, oh, you can eat, yeah, if you want. Eating's okay, eating's an option. No, no, eating is not an option. Eating is essential. You don't eat, you die. Yeah, well, we, we, we can we can we can make space for eating and space for breathing too, if you're really into breathing, if that's your thing. But if not, that's okay too. No, you have to breathe. And this, you see, was the major error. And it's what, in in a much diluted form, further down the line, as you might say, gave us the Quiet Revolution in Quebec. And so in Canada, it's what wrecked the church in Ireland, it's what wrecked the church in the Netherlands, and in differing ways has ruined the church around the world. But I say ruined advisedly, because of course, that's all on one level. On another level, it's important to remember something else. And that is that in the immortal words of Longfellow, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Uh, It's interesting to me, I I wrote my last book before this one was on the Holy Grail, and I had to cover Eucharistic miracles. There have been six approved by the church in the past 25 years. And these are very strange occurrences, very peculiar, involving the turning of uh, bread or bread and wine into actual flesh and blood. This is very, very bizarre. And uh, you know, if we weren't so silly, we'd be shouting it from the housetops, because it's a phenomenon that shouts into our ears the objective reality of transubstantiation. Mind you, our faith isn't dependent on miracles, but it's confirmed by them.
0: Absolutely, and the boy, one of the great tragedies I think of our world today, and and just the rank and file Catholics, Charles. And we're not even counting the the Catholics that have fallen away from the church, which is, you know, depending on where you live in North America here, at least I think in Canada, there's maybe maybe 15 or 20% of Catholics were actually attending, just attending mass on Sunday before this whole virus thing hit. But even the people that were attending, Charles, there's been numbers that have said as high as 70 to 75% of even those Catholics don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. And I used the word frightening before. I think that one takes the cake.
1: Well, I, I take it beyond frightening. I'd say it's criminal because it's the result of bad catechesis and bad literature. Mm-hmm. You know, you treat the blessed sacrament like it was bread. You give it no, shall we say, ritual respect. Uh, people are going to look to their clergy for leadership, Willie or Nelly, If they treat the blessed sacrament poorly, what do you think they're going to th- How do you think people are going to react? You know, you, lex the lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief, and you can see what a priest believes by the way he handles the blessed sacrament. Now, I mean, I I, I hate to be rough, I hate to to be uh, mean, uh, but the the sad truth of the matter is that things are things, or they're not, you know. Um, one of the one of the uh, major problems over the past uh, over the past well all the time I've been around so I'll say fifty five years has been the fact that so many of the clergy made the liturgy their own plaything. Uh, but you know if we wanted that we go to the theater. You you don't go to mass to be entertained you go there to be uh, put in touch with God Himself. And oddly enough, the sermon, I'm sorry to say, is not the major part of getting in touch with God. Mm-hmm. I, I've, nothing has driven me so crazy as people shortening the Mass in order to lengthen the sermon. If you're in a hurry, Father, it's crazy. Shut up. <laughs> I'll take the problem off your hands. But if you don't think, if you don't really believe in the Eucharist, but you are sincerely trying to do something or other for your people, then what are you gonna do? You'll try to instruct them. And again, I'm presuming the best possible motives on the part of a semi-believing individual. Um, I say semi-believing because a lot of these guys, it's not that they consciously disbelieve, but we get into habits. Uh, Mutatis mutandis, if you're married, and more particularly if you know a lot of married people, You'll know that sometimes they begin to take each other for granted, and they and they slip into it. they don't even notice uh, but if you're on the outside, sometimes you know, you go to dinner with a uh, at a married couple's uh, home, and you think to yourself, "My gosh, do they pay attention to each other at all? Do they even care now, of course, to be fair, sometimes married couples have dynamics that are entirely their own. You know, and there's, there's, uh, this is a, a, a foray off the side there, but uh, there's nothing quite so poignant as when you've got a couple like that who seemingly teach you, treat each other with disdain, and then one of them dies, and the other is absolutely shattered, and you realize there was a lot more there than met the eye.
0: And sometimes the other spouse doesn't live very much longer physically; they usually yeah. pass away very quickly right after, as well, right?
1: Very often, especially the, I mean, the longer they've been married. You no. Uh there's a, uh, there was a very, this, again, we're, we're going into a wild tangent, but there was a film some years ago called Curtain Call with James Spader. And he plays a, a publishing, a young publishing magnate who buys a haunted brownstone in uh, New York. And it's haunted by the ghosts of this theatrical couple. Uh, she died in, back in the early 60s, and then he followed like six weeks later. And they're they're constantly... Arguing, so finally, they they have a confrontation, and uh, she uh, she says, uh, you know, he says, well, you always had to have the last word, and then you died on me, Lily. And uh, he's and she says, well, that wasn't the end of your life. And he says, well, what was I supposed to do? Reemerge from act from retirement, play grandfathers? I don't think so. So and then, of course, at the end, being a happy a happy ending romantic fantasy, uh, they do find themselves. Of course, it was played by Michael Caine and uh, oh golly, what's her name? The grandmother in Downton Abbey. Uh, oh heavens, you know who I mean. She plays every noble woman that ever lived. Now,
0: yeah, I do. She's but, a, she's a mainstay actress for sure. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. We'll find the
1: name. Now, if, if you can imagine the two of them as a as a uh, a pair of ghosts, it was very funny. Anyway. The, uh, the point I'm making, though, is that the same sort of taking for granted can often creep into a priest's relation with the Blessed Sacrament to say nothing of the layman's relationship with the church as a whole. And, you know, one of the things that uh, people my age and older have told me who come back to the church, especially if they left it before or during the, um, the post-Vatican II excitements, is that they um, they never thought it would be so so different things could be so so strange and so on and i uh, my response to them has always been you see you thought you could just take off you know you could take a holiday from the church and everything would be fine when you got back <laughs> well that's not how it happened instead in your absence uh everything went to pieces but what we can't lose sight of is that God is still in charge. It's still his church, no matter how much we try to wreck it. Uh, if we know our history, and I've written a history of the Pope, so I can rest on my laurels for a moment. If We know our history, we know that we human beings are very good at messing things up. Kind of the Midas touch in reverse. And we haven't been able to, to strangle the church yet, despite our best efforts. And this, you know, it's an ongoing theme in our history. Back in the uh, 1300s, the church was in very bad shape, especially in Rome. uh, Boccaccio wrote in the Decameron a story set in uh, Paris, where this Frenchman had a very close friend who was Jewish. And he was always trying to get him to convert to the faith. Well, Finally, the Jewish friend says, you know what, I'm going to go to Rome. If your religion is true, I'll find it out there. And he says, "No, no, don't go to Rome. Whatever you do, please don't go." But he does, and the and the Frenchman thinks, "Well, that's it. He's gone. He's lost." He comes about a year and a half later. He's walking down the street, and up comes his Jewish friend, and he says, "Well, I've gone back from Rome. I converted. You want to go to mass?" And he said, "Well, yeah, sure, but didn't wasn't Rome corrupt? Oh, horrible! The papal court, disgusting. Well." why did you convert I said well i realized any organization that could last this long with this kind of leadership obviously had to be divine
0: i'll go back not quite that far but back to the 14th century of saint charles borromeo right and yeah. he dealt with an actual plague an actual plague and he said fear yeah. the plague of the soul over the contagion of the body and you know kind of on that note what what do you think is what what's the church's response been like to this this virus um it seems like we've really missed out on an opportunity. Kind of to tie in with you said, what you said before, Charles, about how we worship. It, it doesn't seem like we've put enough emphasis on the sacraments and we've let an opportunity slip us by, doesn't
1: it? Well, yeah. I mean, we, we don't believe in their necessity. So we don't, why endanger your health? when the biggest tragedy that can happen to you, according to our current philosophy, is that you die. And uh, your health has to be preserved above all other considerations. Now, uh, mind you, um, it is a recipe for further disaster. You know, usually when civilization has been at a terrible cultural crossroads, a lot of conversions are made. You saw that in the uh, aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, the rise of the Romantic movement. Lots of real good converts came out of that. You saw it in the aftermath of World War One. You even saw it in the aftermath of World War II. The 60s would have been a great time for convert-making because we had all these people wondering what's it all about, Alfie. Unfortunately, that was when we chose to abandon the salvation of souls. We weren't interested. We were busy redefining our mission in the world, re- becoming something new and exciting, and so forth and so on. So we let it pass us by. This year, you're absolutely right. It was a tremendous opportunity. But if you don't believe that the sacraments are necessary, you know, I mean, how many churches had signs on them saying, just make a perfect act of contrition and a spiritual act of communion? All right, you know what, Padre If that's all I need, I'll never darken your door again. See ya. Bye-bye. No more. Bye-bye. All gone. Oh, and by the way, I'm taking my money with me. See ya. So in a sense, the problem is its own solution. What is going to come out of this is a much smaller church. A lot of parishes will close. A lot of priests and bishops who thought they were going to get pensions. (laughs) Well... Unless you're living in Germany and got that sweet old church tax, letting you do whatever you want, no matter how stupid you are. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, your Lordship. You got a world of hurt, you made for yourself. And for me, there's also, I have to say, kind of a generational aspect. Now there are a lot of very fine young seminarians and priests out there who really believe and it become the targets of abuse, and I, I don't mean that in the uh, outre way. I mean that in the abuse way, in the, annoyed, in the constantly being annoyed and put down and kicked around and stepped on way by bishops and senior priests. And this is very, very common. Now, I've often had young priests and seminarians ask me why this is, and I can tell you why. Um, The people who dominate the church now age-wise were the young priests of my childhood. The people who did not initiate the post-conciliar changes but carried them out, and very often did so with a savage glee. Oh, did they enjoy themselves. They felt very alive. Well, the problem with these kids in the priesthood is that they really believe and their minds are not trapped in 1968. And so what I tell them is, it's not you as a person, you as an individual. It's what you represent. Despite your best efforts, which your your mere existence tells them, is that all their efforts when they felt young and alive were for naught. And nobody likes that kind of a message. If you came to me and said, you know what, Mr. Coulomb, your entire body of work, was garbage. Really, the world would be better off if you never picked up the pen. Yep, it's true. If you had stayed away from media and never done anything like that in your life, the world would be a better place. I don't see how I could possibly welcome a message like that, no matter how unconsciously delivered it was. Now, the fact that you might be right in telling me this would make it even worse. I mean, at least if you were full of it, I could say, well, the kid's full of it. But the fact that on some level I know you're right makes me hate you all the more. It's not going to help. And, of course, some of your contemporaries, for reasons of career or other important sanctified motives, will swallow the Kool-Aid. But even they won't be as committed to it because they weren't around in '68. They've got different motivations. A lot of them, if you uh, demonstrate through the, uh, I'm going to be vulgar, the amount of money you bring in from your parish, that will speak more to them than it will to your elders. Very often, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Now, mind you, some of your listeners. May be upset with me for telling it, but the truth can't hurt, can it? No, Not at all. I, I didn't think so.
0: love the stories. Let's just uh, yeah, keep it rolling, man. This is great.
1: <laughs> well, it's stories of what I tell, you know. The uh, I'm enough of a Celt to uh, like the Shanahi, you know. So, the uh, the thing is that uh, I've got a very good friend who uh, back before Samorum Pontificum allowed the traditional mass, wanted, uh, and, and there's an irony there because the very decree explicitly said that it had never been legally forbidden, despite the fact that thousands of clerical careers across the world were destroyed on the specious declaration that it was. But we'll put that aside. Who cares about justice when we're talking about the faith? Anyway, so... Uh, My beloved cardinal, I won't mention who it was, but it was Roger Cardinal Mahoney, was the Archbishop of Los Angeles at the time, and when not covering up various crimes, was very, very attentive to the liturgical life of the Archdiocese. So he had declared that while we could have Tridentine Masses here and there, we couldn't have nuptial Masses, absolutely forbidden. Well, well, you know, they're dangerous. They might get out in the street and frighten the horses. So... My a very good friend of mine was going to get married, but he was marrying a girl from the neighboring uh, neighboring diocese of San Bernardino, whose bishop Bishop Barnes had declared that uh, such nuptial masses could be permitted for pastoral reasons. So, <laughs> Steve comes to me and says, "What does that even mean?" I said, "Let me let me translate for you because I know ease, I speak it." I said, "This is what you do." You write his lordship a letter. Don't mention anything religious because it'll be confusing and he won't know what it's about. So forget that part. Just explain to him that your own family are Italian, Slovak, and Magyar, which is quite true. And you're marrying a Peruvian girl, also true. Uh, so for cultural reasons, to bring these very diverse groups together, a Latin nuptial mass would make perfect sense. Now include a $100 check. Don't mention the check in the letter just include it and if it gets cashed you'll probably get your permission well check was cashed he got his permission it was a beautiful mass absolutely beautiful and the pastor of the place was so happy at having done so that he convinced the next couple who wanted to get married that they wanted a similar nuptial mass he applied for permission and he was turned down now, he was an older man he wasn't a young priest and he shrieks at me, he says, what, what is this? Your friend gets it and I didn't and I asked for the permission. And he's going on and on and on. And I said, Father, did you include a $100 check? He goes, what? I said, did you include a $100 check? Well, that, that's, it's called play, pay to play, Father. But thats that's, it's simony, Father. It's an old tradition of the church. It goes all the way back to the time of the apostles. Uh, notice I didn't say to the apostles. Ha. Well, he uh, there was a little lesson there. But uh, even in the best of times, however, and this is something that people who apply for favors from uh, the clergy should remember, even without venality involved, the church can't run for free. Yeah. Yeah. And although... Probably the example I give is a little bit grotesque. Nevertheless, if you are going to ask for something, you should always come cash in hand. It's simple courtesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because remember, you're, if you're asking them to, uh, to go out of their way to do something for you, um, you really should reward them. I mean, you'd want something like that. And remember, if, if a priest, say, especially the diocese where it's frowned on and he might uh, suffer some kind of punishment for it. If you're going to ask a priest for a, a traditional sacrament of any kind, give him something to make it worth his while. Mm-hmm. Because believe me, he'll he'll be smacked around depending on the diocese. Mm-hmm. But mind you, the opposite is true too. Uh, if the uh, if the priest wants to get creative, make it plain to him that he'll do it on his dime. Both with, uh, with marriages, I've been a best man 16 times, you know, and I have a, a certain amount of experience in this area, both with marriages and with funerals. Very often various committees will have all sorts of fun ideas as to how they want to do things. You always have to make it plain to them. I want it done the way the missile requires it, and your stipend depends upon it. You can do anything you want for free, of course. But if I'm paying for it, and that you'd be amazed how that changes the uh, changes the thing entirely. Uh,
0: A priest, uh, you know, if you're talking about uh, even a a priest that belongs to an order, they're not making a lot of money. They're making a stipend, right? So it's it's the right thing, and it's biblical too. Jesus even says in the Gospels that you know if you're going to be you're going to be doing the labor, you know, you're it's it's right to be companion. Compensated laborers, for, right? is,
1: yeah, the laborer is worthy of his hire, and it's and it's a two way street. Yeah. On the one hand, uh, if you want something extraordinary out of uh, out of the clergy, you should pay for it. On the other hand, uh, presuming, of course, that it's it's Catholic, if they want if uh, they want to be paid, they've got to earn it. Yep. I, I mean, it it really is not rocket science. And this is particularly the case if they have a very casual attitude toward the sacraments anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Father Smith or, or Jones or Brown isn't, shall we say, the most robust of believers, he should be grateful that he's getting anything at all. Contrary wise, contrary wise, if he's very devout and works very hard and as a result, Gets all sorts of guff, uh, whether from higher up or from his own people. Be ready with the wallet. Mm-hmm. No, makes Support, a lot of sense. I mean,
0: Absolutely, for sure.
1: Your your priests, for instance, uh, that'll hear confession at the drop of a hat. Make sure they get their dough. I mean, uh, the again, you've got the the twofold thing. On the one hand, if they're working hard, they need to be paid. On the other hand, if they fob you off with, well, perfect contrition, spiritual communion, all right, well then guess what? That's how you'll be paid. When uh, Cardinal Mahoney first became Archbishop, he wrote a letter on the Eucharist in which he declared that in the simple acts of breaking the bread and blessing the cup, Christ is present in memory and in hope. Well, my father read that and said, wow, that's the way my money is going to be in his collection plate. Even Archbishop Sheen talked about the
0: role of the laity in keeping our priests and our clergy bishops accountable as well. Not because we don't we don't love them. It's because, precisely because we do love them and we want them to go to heaven as well. We And we know that the, the source and the summit of the Catholic life, the Christian life, is the Eucharist. And how we worship is so important, isn't it?
1: It's it's the only reason we're in the game at all, and the problem is, and this is something they're, they're going to be having to deal with for quite a while, I think. After you know, after the COVID monster goes back to wherever it came from, as all pandemics do, um, they're going to have to deal with the fact that in a lot of places, they gave the message: that the church isn't necessary. And they're going to be expecting people to come flocking back. Well, depending on how effective they were in getting that message across, they might find that to be a little difficult. The other thing it revealed, though, too, quite apart from the church, was how the state really feels about the church. And this is something that, sh- that shouldn't be let go. You know, we're used to speaking of church and state as though they were somehow equal partners. What the state has revealed over the past year is that it's not church and state except in the same sense that it's church and rotary club or church and dance hall. And the fact that they would keep abortion mills open is essential and close churches that tells you what our political masters are like and they should be treated with the amount of contempt their behavior deserves. These people they're they're well they're contemptible Liberation. Absolutely,
0: that that blows my mind, Charles. That abortion is considered an essential service here in North America, and uh, we well, should be if, um, if, we should be quite if, fearful of of the uh, the repercussions of of God because of that for not allowing uh, people, especially Catholics and other people of goodwill, to go to attend their service. But for us, we have the Eucharist we we can't do
1: this over Zoom or Skype. No, you know? we can't, and we weren't intended to. And the fact yeah. is. Uh, you know, there, there's something that has to be borne in mind, and that is that leadership is not a static thing, not in the church, not in the state, nowhere. And the group uh, group that's in a lead- leadership position is constantly evolving in the sense that old people die, and no one's are either born into it or recruited, or both. That's just the way every leadership group in any human society works. That's... You know, if you uh, if you're a member of an organization that's been around for a while, I guarantee you, ten years ago, you had a different group of people running it than are running it now. You've got some of the same people, but there's been a lot of change. Just the way it is. We also know that, for reasons we could debate forever and ever, the general tone of society has gone downhill the past several decades. Education has gone downhill. People don't know what they know. Uh, you look at schools today; they teach virtually nothing of any use. There are gender studies, you know, the other stuff that you can do nothing with. Now, I mention this because even as the general populace have been dumbed down, so too have our masters. They don't know anything either. And where this, uh, you know, I, 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 look both, uh, I look both at the, uh, the current uh, run of jackals running my country and your own beloved premier. And I think to myself, you know, gee, willikers, these people are thick as bricks. Uh, Do they go to stupid school? Well, yeah, (laughs) they did. Well, like Uh, St.
0: Augustine says, sin darkens the intellect. And, you know, in in Justin Trudeau and the the Joe Bidens of the world, Nancy Pelosi's, you know, um, there's, there's nothing worse to efforts of evangelization, Charles, than a poor example, a scandalous example. Am I right? Yeah. Uh,
1: absolutely. And, and these people call themselves Catholic. And, you know, uh, when Joe Biden was inaugurated, he had this uh, father, uh, O'Donovan, uh, give the invocation. And when O'Donovan, SJ, of course, when he was the president of Georgetown, he funded a uh, pro-abortion advocacy group amongst the students there, which thankfully Rome forced him to give up. And he uh, permitted stem cell research at Georgetown. Now, his brother in the Jesuits, Father Robert Dryden, S.J., Congressman Father Robert Dryden, uh, had the uh, most solidly pro abortion voting record of any congressman at the time, which was why John Paul II ordered that priests could no longer sit in legislatures. It was specifically because of Father Dryden. Now, you look at that, you look at, uh, at uh, Justine Trudeau. Uh, who I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I grew up really loathing his father. Uh, but the son, my, 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 you know, he's got, he's got his father's standards and his mother's brains. It's it's, uh, uh, what do you say? You know, And, and again. I, I I'm very proud of being Canadian descent. I I love uh, my ancestral dominion, you know. I I I love Canada, but every time I see that guy, and of course there's this big flub over your governor general. Well, what what sort of a would you think a we would have have uh, appointed? Garbage in, garbage out. What do you think you're gonna get?
0: Yeah, precisely. No, you're right, Charles. You hit it on on the head. I mean, it's uh, it's embarrassing. Quite frankly, it's, it's extremely it's, embarrassing. And for Catholics, you it, uh, you amplify it even more ten times because people do. And you know, he he's mentioned several times that he's he's a Catholic that he goes to church. You know, whatever that means. You know, he has a you know he has a relationship with our church. And then what he does on an everyday basis. You know, not only to to people of faith, not only to his fellow Catholics, but what he does to to divide our country. Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarly to what you're saying with with his dad. You know out in the west there's a lot of alienation because of this and uh, and you know that that kind of confusion that kind of division that doesn't come from our lord
1: it, does, it just doesn't it it doesn't and you know again not not to wax uber patriotic but the thing about canada you know the thing about canada is that it had some of the best imaginable ingredients to go into a country you know, uh, without wanting to pat my own ancestors on the head too much. They couldn't help being wonderful. It wasn't their fault. They just were. Uh, but before the Revolution Tranquille, Quebec and the French islands and the rest of the Dominion were the most Catholic part of America. And the Catholic faith was integral to French-Canadian society in an, in an incredible way. As far as the Anglo-Canadians go, if nothing else, the, uh, the foundation of Anglo-Canada was the flight of the loyalists who were willing to give up everything for loyalty to their king. That's not a bad foundation, and the fact that these two peoples, different as they were and as much as they disliked one another, to be brutally frank, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that the uh, the conquest isn't uh, always hovering around the back of my head. It is. But nevertheless, it was also a, a felix culpa because the uh, French Canadians were spared the French Revolution. One of the jokes, you know, before the Revolution Tranquille was that uh, we used to say we were the French who didn't murder our king. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was the time uh, when we were the irreducible element of Canada. You know, the Anglo Canadians is always the, the worry that they might kind of flop and turn American. There was no such worry with the French. But then you got the uh, the immortal William Lyons, Mackenzie King. If you want to look for the, the real author, the beginning of the ruin, in my estimation of Anglo Canada, it was Mackenzie King, Prime Minister during World War II, uh, liberal, grit. I don't want to bag on his being a spiritualist and getting advice and seances. I don't want to bag on him for that because it's Lincoln's birthday and Lincoln had seances in the white house. So we don't want to go after our spiritualist friends. <laughs> but in truth, he really began the erosion of Anglo-Canadian identity, uh, which, you know, was carried on through Pearson and then Trudeau and so forth. It's, have you read Grant, George Grant?
0: No, no, I have not, but I'd like to.
1: Well, I I recommend him highly. It's called Lament for a Nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talks about the the loss of the uniquely conservative Anglo-Canadian ethos, Mm -hmm. which stood as a alternative to the United States. Now you see there isn't one, really. Now the only thing Anglo Canadians can say is that well we're not American,
0: but that's isn't that and that that's what we have Charles Charles wh- what we are is we're a hockey loving nation. The thing that brings us together is is a, is a game which is fun and, and it's nice, but it's it, it the people try to mask these massive shortcomings and differences in our country by by using a sport to try to unite and that's, you know what I. There's some goodness in that. I'm not gonna say that it's it's necessarily bad or evil. It's not an intrinsic evil to to play a game, but if that's all you've got, if that's all you got, Charles, is a game, there's some bigger problems, right?
1: I'll say, and I'll I'll tell you, and again, I say this not as a a big Anglophile, but I'll tell you something interesting. Do you know who the biggest single opponent of the abolition of appeals to the Privy Council was back in 1949?
0: No, nope, but I'm willing to. I'm sure it's going to be a good story, though.
1: <laughs> it, it is. Maurice okay. okay. That's who. Why? Because as a good French Canadian, uh, he might not like London, but he trusted it more than Ottawa. <laughs> and that, you know, people forget a lot. And of course, nobody knows any history anymore because uh, an ignorant people are easier to rule. And I accept that on behalf of my masters. And they don't know much anyway themselves, so it's fine. But uh, you may be aware that uh, during the course of the uh, American Revolution, or as I like to call it, our first Civil War, uh, the southern colonies invaded Quebec. Well, prior to this, prior to this happening, uh, the Continental Congress uh, was very upset over the Quebec Act, which gave my people our freedom, religion, and laws, in the words of the old orange, the old orange flute. <laughs> and the, um, the Quebec Act was considered one of the intolerable acts in the, uh, in, in the South, in the States. So at that point, the Continental Congress wrote two letters, one to the people of Britain, one to the people of Canada. And again in those days kind that meant canadian yeah, there were very few anglo-canadians so uh to the people of britain it attacked the king for the quebec act and said that he has established in canada that religion which has bathed your islands in blood and then he they sent a letter to the people of canada saying that well you know despite the difference in our religion and language we have a joint love of freedom and surely our differences won't divide us and blah, 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 blah. So uh, they then sent Benjamin Franklin up with a Catholic priest named Father John Carroll to Quebec to attempt to seduce the uh, French Canadians from their allegiance to the crown. There was a little problem with this. And the problem was that uh, Bishop Briand, the Bishop of Quebec, had gotten both letters. This was a real oops moment. Whoops is right, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody got fired over that, I'm sure. Well, indeed. (laughs) But since since he had it, not only did he forbid any of his priests to give uh, Father Carroll and Franklin hospitality, and he suspended the one who did, he excommunicated Father John Carroll. Now, it's a local excommunication, but the upshot of this was that many, many years later, after independence, Pius VI asked George Washington for his advice on appointing a bishop to Baltimore, the first American bishop. And Washington's response was, well, you know, Your Holiness, we don't do that here. Appoint whoever you like. It's it's not the interest of of our government. Do whatever you like. So having failed to get advice from Washington, he turned to the most famous American in Europe at the time, Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin recommended Father John Carroll to be the first bishop of Baltimore. So someone else asked him, Well, why did you recommend Father Carroll? And he said, Well, you know, all the months we spent together going up to Canada and coming back, he never once brought up religion. So for as far as Franklin was concerned, that was a perfect perfect role for a Catholic bishop. Well, all right, he's appointed, now he's got to get consecrated bishop. So you would think he'd go to Quebec, right? No. He was still excommunicate. So he made the journey to England to get consecrated a bishop. (laughs) And then he came back to Baltimore. So uh, you'll be amused to know that that excommunication was only lifted about 10 years ago.
0: I didn't know that. That's a fascinating story.
1: Well, see, the great thing about history is that it doesn't allow anyone to be smug. Uh, All of us, regardless of our nationality or background, our side were always right, and the others were always wrong. Now, we have nothing to base it on, except that's what we were told, that's how we feel. But when you begin to examine your history more carefully, you begin to realize that we're all guilty of some terrible, terrible, terrible bonus and it's you know there's an old saying no holiness without humility no humility without humiliation and if there's anything history will provide you it's humiliation <laughs> that's probably true. that's why we, yeah. it's probably why we don't teach it anymore
0: <laughs> well and there is that there's that faction of that this That's not a faction it's a force in the world um that uh that's trying to erase that history and History's taught us a lot of things and we're bound to repeat them if we do all that but I do want to ask you this question I I want to ask you about the future of the church and it kind of ties into the article here from crisis magazine that you wrote a couple of weeks ago and you touched on it a little bit already called the kids order all right yeah and um, it, really interesting article um, again ties into you know a, a publication which will go nameless here a dissident publication that's uh, critical of young so-called politically conservative, you know, traditionally minded seminarians, young priests who talked a little bit about that before, kind of turning them into like, there's some sort of a boogeyman, right? But you yeah, have this, this quote here. I thought it was really interesting, Charles. It says, in a larger sense, however, such efforts as the recent erecting of the use of altar girls and lectresses into church law and the like do indeed represent the last ditch efforts of a dying breed to remake the faith once delivered to the saints into their own image before they are carted off to the cemetery now, i thought that was pretty that was really deep and, and, and very well put but what does that mean for the church here in the next five to ten years you know pope john paul ii back in the 80s and then through the 90s kind of made the the new evangelization kind of something famous that from his pontificate right like he brought that up a lot you know we're looking out at our church now and we're saying you know I mean he's a saint he was he was a great great pope for me he was he was the pope of pretty much most of my life until two thousand and five. But you know you look around and say man where where's this new evangelization? where's this the springtime in the church where is is it, it going to come? Where do you think we're going to be heading here in say five to ten years from now where where are we going, Charles?
1: Well, the next five to ten years, I think will be very ugly uh, very, very ugly indeed because that dying breed will uh, wreck everything they can. They'll break the furniture on their way out. Uh, A lot of, and and their very efforts will accelerate the decay you see all around us. So a lot of parishes are going to close. A lot of institutions that we love will die. Uh, I mean, the Knights of Columbus, which I'm a very proud member of, uh, the changes to, to the order over the past four or five years have been insane, and done without any consultation. We were, they were just fiat. You know, I'm a fourth degree knight, and I was on the verge of joining the color the uh, color guard until they, uh, you know, made it look like the Royal Canadian Legion. Now, don't get yeah, me wrong. Me too,
0: I... me too, Charles. I'm a fourth degree member as well, and I but I joined before the changes happened, and I was. Similar to you, I was a little disappointed in the the change in the garb.
1: <laughs> I, I, it was horrible. And I'll tell you, I love the Royal Canadian Legion, don't get me wrong, but I did not serve queen and country in, uh, you know, in any combat that uh, Canada has been involved in. So I don't really think I should look like a Royal Canadian Legionnaire. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm all for them, but I'm just not one of them.
0: Who doesn't like the plume of the ostrich over a beret? <laughs>
1: That's for sure. Well, it isn't just that, you know. It's not just that. Look, I'm French. I touch a beret and it's perfect. But you know, you can't do this with Anglo's. Certainly not in the states. I I remember when they brought the beret and the Boy Scouts back in '72. It was the same thing. Again, I'd tap my head and the thing was perfect. Everybody else in my troop, 363, Hollywood, California, they'd have all these weird things on their heads because a beret in Anglo hands just looks stupid. Unless they're in the army, in which case they've got the time to force them to learn how to do it. Hence the legionnaires knowing how to do it. But honestly, that uh, getting rid of the the uh, getting rid of the various degrees, getting rid of the confidentiality slash secrecy, and again with no consultation, just by fiat. Well, you know what? Uh, the problem is, and, and then of course punishing those who didn't go along with it. That was the, uh, you punish volunteers, boyo. You see what you get for your money. Mm -hmm. But having said that, uh, this will accelerate. Um, And eventually, in 10 to 25 years, now mind you, I'm only speaking in a sort of vacuum here because things will be going on in the state as well. The wokeness which hates the faith, no matter how many Justine Trudeaus there are, no matter how many Joe Bidens, it still hates the faith. Uh, and people like that will eventually be pushed aside if things continue the way they're going. And they'll be replaced with people who are much more obvious. Hmm. Um, the, you know, the fig leaf will be ripped off, in other words, or, or the shamrock, as the case may be, will be ripped off to uh, expose the horror underneath. Uh, that might,
0: be a, that might be a good, well, not might be, it will be a good thing.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, it'll be a good thing. Ultimately mm-hmm. it won't be fun to live through. I mean, and that's, right. that's the thing. When you, when you look, when you look at martyrdom and all that, it's great, unless you're the one being martyred, and then you have to pray that you persevere. Uh, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's easy to expect and demand heroism out of others. But not so much when it comes to us ourselves, and that you know, and this is something you, you almost have to be an older man uh, or an older one, I guess, to really catch, because when you're young, the idea of fighting and combat for the faith and all that is is very romantic and very dramatic, and, and I certainly felt it myself. And you're older, you just you like things not to be so upsetting. And I know it's funny coming from me because I've spent a career upsetting people, but I understand the price that's to be paid for it. And it's a heavy one. Being over here now uh, on the edge of Eastern Europe, you know, I've traveled extensively in Poland and Czechia and Hungary and Slovakia and Romania, Croatia and Slovenia. I've seen up close and personal and go to school, uh, both instructors and classmates, with people who went through communism and it, it cast a long shadow. and was a horrible, horrible thing. I hate to think of the United States and Canada to say nothing of Western Europe going down that same stupid route. And it is stupid. Everything our masters are pushing has been shown to be garbage, but they are so stupid and we are so weak that it's going to happen anyway. And it, 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 it's, it's a perfect storm because our church leadership isn't much better, most of it. Uh, so all you can do is remember an important truth, which is that each of us were born into the historic period we were born in because God knew from all eternity this was the best time for us to save our souls. That's why you and I are here. And I'll, I'll tell you two quick points from my late lamented father about the this sort of thing. On the one hand, uh, he would always make that point that this, we're here and now, because this is the best time for us to save our souls. And then he'd say, but of course that doesn't speak very well of you or me. <laughs> so that, that was his one line. And then the other, uh, in trying to, Find a place to stand, and what we're going to do with ourselves in the great, in our personal combat in this great tapestry. Uh, he used to tell the, a sort of parable about this wealthy Catholic man, husband and father, who died, and he went up to the gates in heaven. And Saint Peter looks over his paperwork. Now, mind you, this man was very rich, and he contributed a lot to the church. He founded churches and schools and hospitals. And he'd led a very upright personal life. So St. Peter looks through it all. He says, well, you're in. You were a a good husband, a dutiful father. You were very, very free with your time and treasure for the church. A lot of people save their souls because of you. Come on in. And he says, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. But I'm curious, what was my greatest accomplishment? Was it the churches I built? They were great. Well, what about the schools and libraries? Much appreciated. What about the hospitals, the missionaries? Very good. We, we really, all of it, as I say, we saved souls. We're very, very grateful for you. Well, St. Peter, that, that's nice, but you, you're, you're keeping something back. What was my greatest single accomplishment on earth? Do you really want to know? Yes, I wouldn't ask otherwise. What was my biggest moment? All right, I'll tell you. Do you remember when you were 13 years old and you were standing on the corner of Hollywood and Vine? This car pulled up, the guy rolled down the window and said, hey, kid, can you tell me how to get to Sunset and Wilcox? And you told him. And he got there just when he was supposed to. And everything worked out just the way it was planned, all because you gave him the right directions. You see, this is some totally different drama, some entirely thing unconnected to him, except totally tangentially, and yet the way the way these things are seen in heaven, that was his greatest single victory.
0: Wow, yeah, that's that's outstanding. Well, Charles, I, I'd love to. I've we were talking, we're exchanging some messages offline. I'd love to to chat about. The effects of Marxism and communism that uh, there no doubt are coming to North America. They're coming for us here. Um, and I, I mentioned that my my father was from Czechoslovakia and he escaped the communist and Marxist uh, savagery really oh, yeah. of the yeah. uh, 40s and 50s. And I'd love to love to talk to you about that in the future. I hope we can somehow uh, <laughs> track you down. Even though we've got some the time difference, I know you're you're a busy man as well, but. I just want to say thank you so much for your time, for joining us here on the, the Catholic Connect podcast and, and sharing uh, your stories and insights with our listeners. And, and we're on a journey to heaven, and we need to journey together. We need to be together as, as Catholics and, and other people of goodwill and, and lead that sacramental life and a life of holiness. So next time you come, uh, hopefully you come to Alberta sometime. And uh, we can maybe enjoy a, a good Canadian whiskey and watch a hockey game. How does that
1: sound? I I would enjoy that very very much. I, I'll have you know, I've been to Jasper. Yeah. Uh, okay. Beautiful the, uh, place. Yeah. It, you know what? The funny the funny thing about the West, the Canadian West, is that Quebec, of course, is French speaking, and Ontario, the Maritimes, they feel very foreign to the American. But the the Canadian West is odd because it feels much more like the states, except there are crowns all over the place and the royal this and the royal that. It's like an odd alternate universe where the revolution didn't happen. You know, it's like, <laughs> know, like so that's what it would be like. Now we know, but uh, no, I, 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 uh, I am, uh, I am looking forward very much when the COVID monster goes back to its grave to, uh, to uh, seeing a bit more of the Canadian West. I know, uh, I know Vancouver and BC pretty well. Uh, Alberta, I've been through several times, but only I've been to Jasper and all this, but I haven't spent any real time there. And I look forward to doing so. I will leave you with one funny Western Canadian, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a story, but a sort of reality and a joke I made out of it. Sounds good. Let's hear it. Well, you know that throughout the Commonwealth, you have these civic maces uh, with the crown on top, They're the, the, the sign of the mayor's authority. And that's true in England, it's true in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they all have. Well, Edward VIII, you know, the fellow who abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson and who had a ranch in Alberta, just so you'll know, when he was Prince of Wales, uh, Edward VIII uh, wasn't king very long. So there are only two civic maces of the whole Commonwealth that have his cipher on them. One is in the glorious city of Swindon in England, but the other is Vancouver, BC. So my joke is, my my manufactured folklore, is that if these two mesas are ever brought together and touched, Edward the Eighth shall rise again to lead his people. (laughs) Whenever I said that, someone says, oh God, he's not bringing Mrs. Simpson, is he? No, 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 you just get Edward well, all right that we can deal with <laughs> and
0: maybe fight against the forces of uh progressivism and liberalism of of Justine Trudeau
1: <laughs> oh, dear Justine you know it's it's funny I used to call him Justin Bieber Trudeau, but uh I've acquired a, a much greater respect for Justin Bieber, so I'm not going to uh I'm not going to tar him with the Trudovian uh brand anymore at least he can sing a little bit right so well. <laughs> He's sort of kind of pro life, I guess.
0: That's yeah, that that is true well. His his mom definitely is for sure and and I guess uh, he wouldn't definitely wouldn't be here on this earth if it wasn't for that that choice. That's uh, beautiful choice. So, Charles, thanks again. I appreciate your time so much and uh, I look forward to uh to catching up with you again the soon and uh, God bless the work that you're doing for sure for our church.
1: God bless you and yours as well.
0: well I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charles as much as I did. There was so much unpack there it was uh, was a great conversation so much good information from Charles and uh, a lot of real hard-hitting truths too and I think that's what we need in our church today we really need to to pull the blinders from our eyes and see our church and see our world for what it really is so uh, Charles uh, is doing some great work out at Tumblr House if you're interested in any of these books go to tumblrhouse.com he's got a great podcast called off the menu and he's also a contributor at Crisis Magazine, among many other places that you can find Charles. And uh, certainly hope that we can catch up to Charles again in the very near future. And a reminder that we're on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, like, subscribe, and share as you see fit. And reach out to me anytime through those platforms. I love hearing from listeners. And uh, your feedback and prayers are, are appreciated so much. Thank you very much. But like Charles said, we're living in real challenging times, but exciting times if you're a Christian. And, you know, I've never felt any regret. I've never felt any despair over being a Catholic. I've been a Catholic my whole life. Being a follower of Jesus is something that gives me so much joy. So I encourage you to learn your faith, to live your faith, and to share your faith. Now's a great time to be alive. The opportunities are endless right now. And uh, let's support each other on this journey to heaven and spreading the gospel because that's The most important thing in the world right now is to save souls. And like Archbishop Sheen says, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. So keep walking with our Lord Jesus and stay in a state of grace. And go to confession at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent. And anytime you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening, everyone. God bless. We'll talk to you very soon.